three lessons left in this series on encountering Jesus. Now, you'll notice in the bulletin, hopefully you've seen it, the uh, sheet, there's a sheet in the bulletin uh, that is double-sided. It's a long one. You're like, we're thinking, man, that's a lot of text. We're not doing all that today. We're basically doing the front half today and the back half uh, next week. It almost perfectly worked out that way in the way that it, the page break was. Uh, this is one of the few encounters that you're going to see all four of the Gospels. And I've had to add another color of the text. The red letter text in your bulletin insert is not the words of Jesus. It is the words of John. Uh, so we're, we're thinking about in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's two parts. John really focuses on the, the back half of the page there. Uh, towards the end of Jesus' life, we're going to do these two lessons of encountering Jesus in the garden. And then we're going to do one encounter with Jesus post-resurrection, uh, encountering Jesus on the coast. And that will be uh, the conclusion to this series as we've been going through. Uh, we're going to start a series on Christian growth after that, if you're interested. Today's encounter, first half of the garden encounter, is the most heart-wrenching and I would suggest vulnerable moments in Jesus' entire life. As we think about the things that we're going to discover about Jesus today, we've seen him in a variety of emotional states throughout this series, throughout the Gospels. Uh, of course, he wept over the death and resurrection of Lazarus. He was sad over the young ruler's refusal when he says uh, he went away sad because he wouldn't give up his, his possessions. We've seen him angry, a lot of anger in the Gospels over the hardness of people's hearts and, and their unwillingness to accept the truth that he has to offer. And we've seen him tightly controlled under fire, under questioning, as he's answering and questioning in turn, very controlled, very steady in his emotions. So he runs the whole gamut, right? Because our emotions, our, our human emotions, come from God. We are emotional beings because God is an emotional being. And there's no more humanizing moment, no more emotional moment than his agony in the garden. Of course, Luke, we read just a minute ago, Luke's the only one to include this particular detail. He's so emotional, his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now, this is the first in a two-part on endurance and meekness. Next week, we're really going to hone in on the idea of meekness in the garden. Uh, first, in this profound weakness, this moment of profound weakness at the first here. And then the second, we, he returns to the total control again, tightly controlled and steady and in control of the moment in the second half of the garden. Uh, so the first half today. Of course, he comes to the garden in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I, I'm going to put the references up there. I will not be reading, as, as we have done in this series, I will not be reading all those references. You can see them on the screen. It's Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. And I've blended them together into this account. Again, there's a, interesting differences between the accounts, but that's what's happening as we're reading the text this morning, if you haven't been here, as we've been going through the series. The text here is a blend of all four gospel accounts. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him across the brook Kidron to the garden called Gethsemane. That's a detail that John includes here. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. John includes this nice detail. This is not a new place. A place he's been before. This is uh, maybe a place that he's been to pray, a place that he's been to commune. This is something that he's done previously. Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled and greatly distressed. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
Now, of course, first question, why is Jesus so troubled? Remember last week, we looked at it at the beginning in John chapter 13. John chapter 13 really marks the transition, the beginning of the end as Jesus' life is, is coming to a close. And John was very clear in saying in John 13, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, knowing what's about to befall him, there's a lot of knowledge that Jesus has about the coming hours and days. And that's what's making him troubled, right? His knowledge is what's making him troubled. Knowledge of what he's have to endure, knowledge of what he's going to go through, knowledge of what's going to happen to his disciples. I think any of us would be sorrowful and troubled at this particular juncture if this is what we knew was ahead of us. Trouble and sorrow. An interesting thing here. He takes his disciples to the garden but then he takes the three even further, Peter, James, and John. We've seen him take these three in various places in the gospel stories. And I think the first thing that we should say about this encounter is we're learning from Jesus. And really this week and next week, what I'm wanting us to do is as we consider the personality, the life, the emotions of Jesus, thinking about what does that mean for us? How does that apply to us? And I think the first thing is this. It's okay to lean on the support of other people. Jesus does not go over there alone. Now, he does eventually separate from the group to go pray. But what does he ask? He asks the disciples, stay here and watch with me. I don't want to go through this alone. Nobody wants to go through this alone. Nobody wants to be on his own at the end. So he has brought his disciples, the, the group, but then he's further brought the people that he's been closer to, the people that he's developed a more specific kind of friendship with throughout the course of the Gospels. Watch with me. Be here with me. Encourage me. Now, we know, of course, ultimately, they're going to fail. But Jesus, I think, demonstrating even Jesus understood the value and the importance of having other people in your life to support you in difficult moments. That's why he brings them with him. But of course, at the end of it, he is praying on his own, right? He withdraws about a stone's throw, as Luke says. That distance can vary depending on your strength, of course. But he is probably relatively close, as we keep reading in the garden here. About a stone's throw further, he fell on his face and prayed that if it were possible. And I want you to note the sequencing of phrases here. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him, saying, Father, all things are possible for you, if it be possible, and if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, I want to make a note, specific note, about the differences in the gospel accounts before we go on. Luke only records, as you're reading Luke, Luke doesn't have three instances of prayer. Luke only records the third instance. It seems he just phones in on the third instance of the praying, doesn't really mention the other two. Matthew and Mark emphasize repeatedly that he is saying the same prayer. He prays, he goes, he prays, he goes, he prays, he goes. So I've included Luke's phrasing in this first prayer. Because again, Matthew Mark saying he's praying the same thing every time. Luke really only records the third prayer. John doesn't even record this at all. John, for John's purposes, his story of the garden, uh, much more emphasizing the back half. And you'll see on the back half of your sheet, there's a lot of red text. John says a lot of interesting details about the back half of this story. But more importantly, as we think about this account, what is happening here, the epitome of meekness and humility before God. And I want you to note the sequencing here. He says, all things are possible for you. He said this a few times in the Gospels. Think about the rich man, right? Uh, did the disciples ask him, well, if, if it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? With man, Jesus says, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. 
And we saw that in Zacchaeus, right? The story of Zacchaeus, a rich man who entered the kingdom. He says it to the man with the demon-possessed son. He comes to Jesus. And, and of course, this is echoed in Jesus' phrase, right? If it is possible, the demon, man with the demon-possessed son comes to Jesus. Jesus, if it's possible, heal my son. And what does Jesus say? If it's possible, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is reiterating through this account the same struggles, the same difficulties that we have seen in humans throughout the Gospels. We've seen people come to Jesus with these kinds of statements, these kinds of questions, and here Jesus now is going to demonstrate, okay, we have doubts, we have difficulties, we have struggles. This is how to overcome. And we see it in the last phrase here. If you are willing. I think he feels the struggle, right, of possibility. Is it possible? Is there another way? Is there anything else we can do? Is there some other way we can do this? And I think he knows that's wishful thinking, right? That, that's not going to happen. He understands the plan. That's why he came in the first place, to earth. He knows what he needs to do. And so in the struggle of possibility, is it possible? If it's possible, he recognizes that ultimately what's possible is not the point. That's not the question. The real question, are you willing, God? Are you willing to alter the plan? I know you can. I know you're, it's possible. I know all things are possible with you. If you're willing to alter, that I don't have to go through this. If it's something that you could desire instead Getting to the heart of the matter in difficult circumstances is not really a matter of possibility. Jesus has said numerous times, all things are possible, but it's a matter of God's will in our lives and in circumstances. And of course, Jesus' final word here, nevertheless, the great lengths that Jesus goes to to demonstrate the struggle that people have, the rich, rich young man went away sad because he had great possessions. The man with the demon-possessed son Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus here demonstrates, okay, what does it look like? We have struggles with what God expects. We have struggles with what God demands. I, I, maybe I don't want to do them. Maybe it's hard for me to do them. But nevertheless, regardless of what I want, regardless of my own struggle, not my will, but yours be done. All throughout the Gospels, people have failed at that. Jesus comes at the end here to show us this is what it looks like. On the other hand, something we should learn from Jesus here, it is okay to have some difficulty with what God expects of us. When I say difficulty, maybe sometimes to not want it. Maybe sometimes to be sad about it. The things that God demands of righteousness, the things that God expects of his people that are not pleasant, they're not comfortable, they're not nice, they're not happy. Jesus was not exempt from that. He did not ask of us anything he was not willing to demand of his own son. Did Jesus like it? No, he did not. Did he want it? No, he did not. Was it going to be happy and pleasant for him? No, it was not. But he did it anyway. So we're going to have difficulty with what God wants as long as we submit regardless, nevertheless. 
to obey even when it is difficult. Of course, we come to the disciples, those poor saps in the garden. And what do we see? He comes to them. He found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? I wanted one hour, guys. One hour for you to be with me and, and support me and comfort me. Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation. Now he says this a number of times. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went and prayed. Father, if this cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. The entire encounter in the garden, and this week and next week, can be summed up in these words, right? Indeed, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is experiencing that now. The disciples were experiencing that. Maybe they want to be there to support Jesus. They want to be there for him, but oh, the flesh is so, so tired. Of course, they've been through a lot at this point in the story. They've had the Passover. They've had a number of things that have gone on in the past few days. They've been walking around a lot. They're tired. We understand that. But in the garden, we witness the titanic struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is em uh, embodied in Jesus here. The conflict between what one wants to do and what one should do. That's a way we could say this, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We should do some things, but we want to do other things, don't we? In some ways, this is, I think, maybe the most vulnerable moment in the entire plan of salvation. Now, we might say that the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, he begins his ministry with this vulnerable moment, goes out and fasts for 40 days. Jesus is in the wilderness. The devil comes to tempt him. Vulnerable moment there. But here, I think, salvation is teetering on a knife edge between what Jesus wants and what he knows he should do, just like all of us. Now, the disciples, they're not even under great duress like Jesus. They fail, as we so often do. They know Jesus needs them, and their shame is in the text, right? Jesus comes to them, and they don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you, Jesus. They don't know what to answer him. I know we should be awake. We should be with you. We should be comforting you, but we just have failed. It's okay to lean on other people, but know this. Other people will let you down, right? We understand that. No matter our, our great intentions, how, how loving we are, how much we care about one another, I know that you will let me down. And I'm going to let you down. Because I'm not Jesus, I'm not God. You can't be completely dependent on the help of others. You can lean on others, you can need some help from other people, but you can't be completely dependent. There's only one on whom you can completely depend. And so Jesus goes and prays again, and we have this, this great example of encouragement in the garden. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and he became, uh, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke here is the only one to record these specific details, but they are crucial to the whole encounter. And I, I want to note, the agony that leads to the drops of blood is after the angel comes and strengthens him. The angel comes and helps him. That does not alleviate his sorrow, does not get rid of his agony. In fact, as the angel has come and is strengthening him, then he is in even more agony, more difficulty. Of course, the angel is there to help him through that agony, right? 
And if you take nothing else from this sermon, take this. Jesus knows how hard your struggle is. He knows the things in your life that you know God wants you to do that are oh so difficult for you to do for whatever reason. The things that we want versus the things that we should. The immense difficulty in putting aside the flesh, right? Because our spirits are willing. I want to do what God wants. I want to be pleasing to God. The spirit is willing. But man, the flesh is so weak. The struggle to put aside the flesh and to submit to God, Jesus empathizes with that struggle. He knows exactly how hard it is for you to do the things that he, you know you should do. That's the point of Hebrews 4, right? Hebrews 4, 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We do not have an high, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Why does he keep saying to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation? Because that's what he's doing right now. He's about to enter into temptation. He's praying, please, please, please. And the temptation is what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I know I should. I know you want me to. I know this is the plan. But the temptation is to refuse. Which is why I say I think this is perhaps the most vulnerable moment in the whole plan. Let us then with confidence. Why? Because he endured. He endured and he overcame, even though he didn't want to, even though he knew that it would be horrible. He overcame for what reason? Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The example in the garden is the best example of Jesus sympathizing with our struggle. And so we're told to approach the throne to, to find grace to help. Of course, what help did Jesus receive? Didn't Jesus receive help? As we read this again, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. With, uh, strengthening him. People will fail you, but you know who won't? God will not fail you. He will not abandon. He will not forsake. He will not fall asleep on the job. He will provide you the help that we need. And might I suggest that God still offers this exact help? The Hebrew writer again says, Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He says in Hebrews 1.4, Are they not all, that is angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who's to inherit salvation? That's us, right? The help that God offered to Jesus, the angel appeared to strengthening him, I would suggest that's still available. That help that you need, because we understand we lean on people. People will encourage and support, but people will let us down. It's only in God, only in him, that we will find the true strength that we need. And so the conclusion here, as we're transitioning, of course, next week, you can see the crowd coming over the ridge. That is, of course, what's, what we're thinking about for next week. The conclusion of this story, he comes and finds them. He arose from prayer. He came to the disciples a third time. And Luke records a unique detail again here. He found them sleeping for sorrow. None of, the other, none of the other gospels have for sorrow. Finds them sleeping. Luke goes into a little more detail here. They knew something significant was happening and they grieved over their inability to help their friend. They are sad and sorrowful because they are unable to provide what Jesus needed of them. Fortunately, 
God provided it instead, right? That was the beauty of the angel helping him. God knew that people would let Jesus down, and so he had a backup plan. Uh, uh, maybe not the backup, the forefront plan, just like for us. We need people, we understand that, but ultimately it's only God who's going to provide that help. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Sleep and take your rest later on. It's enough. See the hour as is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And suddenly, the sorrow is gone from Jesus. Now, I don't think the sorrow in his emotions is gone, but he has resumed control. He had a moment of weakness, a moment of temptation, a moment of struggle. It is okay to struggle and to be sorrowful and to grieve over what God expects us to do. But at the end of the day, it's in Jesus' actions that we see true Christian endurance, right? To have the struggle, to have the difficulty, to have the sorrow. But at the end of all of that, to come out and decide, I'm going to do it anyway. To resume control of our hearts and to decide and determine to do God's will. See, the hour is here. Betrayer's at hand. It's time to go. Had my moment of sorrow, moment of comfort, moment of temptation, moment of struggle, and now it is time to act. To have such great emotional turmoil, to know the sorrow that awaits, to be abandoned by your friends, and still do the thing you know God wants. That is true Christianity. That's what Jesus demonstrates in this story. That's what it means to be like him. And so as we conclude, if we can say it most plainly, Jesus in the garden shows us that our emotions must not dictate our service to God. Emotions are important. They're good. They're from God. They serve a valuable purpose in our lives. But emotions do not dictate what is should and what is right. Jesus had to struggle and realized at the end of it, despite my emotional desire not to do it, I'm still going to do it. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The opinion raised against the knowledge of God? Don't you think Jesus had an opinion here? What's his opinion? I don't want to do it. I don't want to. That's an opinion. The thought that he will say later, next week, don't you know I, I could call 12 legions of angels? That's a thought. A thought that has entered his mind that he is what? He has taken it captive. Yeah, I could do this, but I'm not going to. He's taken that thought captive to obey. Now, ultimately, for us, it's obeying Christ because he has demonstrated this in the garden and in other places, his perfection, his ability to withstand temptation. For us then, we emulate him. And that's what we're saying here. We're taking every thought captive to obey Christ. We're following in his example, his pattern. He did it. Now I need to do it. I need to follow that example. Revelation 14, 12. We've talked about Revelation a lot. Of course, we're studying it on Wednesday night. Thing we've seen over and over. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. The garden is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And again, we could say it for him. He's not keeping his faith in himself. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in the Father. That's who Jesus had faith in. And I have faith in Jesus because of what he did. 
because he was able to overcome it. The dragon in Revelation 12 wages war today. In our hearts and in our minds, I know, I can say this, I don't have to guess, I know, I can say this 100% confidently, there's a war going on in your heart right now about something. Something you know you should do, you don't want to do it, whatever reason. Could be selfishness, could be difficulty, could be painful, could be it's going to damage a relationship, whatever it is. I don't know what it is, I know you got it. A war in your heart right now. Lean on your friends, lean on each other. We talked about that in our class this morning. But understand that God is the only one who will not fail you. And he's not asking you to do anything that he himself has not already done. To sacrifice our own will for the purpose of the Father. And if he could do it, shouldn't I try to do it as well? To submit my will to what Jesus wants. Because he did that for me. 